Hi everyone, I'm Mizell, and this is part two of the Dandelion season finale. In part one, you met HLS2L David Hicks. I hope you can see why at about seven minutes into my first call with David, I texted the production team that I was kind of obsessed with him. It wasn't even until about minute 45 of that call though, that David told me he has stage four colon cancer. David and I sat down and had the conversation that makes up this two-part finale in late August, just two days before he checked into the hospital for his latest surgery. And so, though it was the last to be released, this conversation was the first Dandelions episode we recorded. You may hear how anxious I was in my voice or notice that I don't interject to ask as many follow-ups as usual. And then there's the sheer length of the thing. I quite simply didn't know how to navigate the conversation or manage the time. If these things were purely a product of my lack of experience as an interviewer, then it's certainly odd to bring attention to and even odder to end the season with. But I'm doing so because I think it's also a reflection of something deeper, of a more fundamental uncertainty about how to be and what to do. Because David is so extraordinary without factoring in his battle with cancer. But as David so aptly calls it, the cancer bomb looms. It's destructive and insidious and it's there. In our first call, I got to know him and appreciate all that he is outside of the cancer, and I thought that you should as well. And that was part one. I hope that in hearing the vulnerability of David's reflections in part two, you see why my stress about how to deal with David's pain and sickness has been replaced by an even deeper gratitude for what is an inescapable nexus between who he is outside of his cancer and who he is because of it. In anticipation of this release, I asked David if and how he wanted me to handle the passage of time and all that has come with it between recording the conversation and the releasing the episode. He sent me two voice notes back. In the first, he said that he felt comfortable with me sharing the following update about his prognosis. David's post-surgery scans show that the cancer is back. There is no medical cure and he is moving to clinical trials and alternative approaches. A few minutes later, in a second voice note, David added, You can say that I explicitly say that everything I said at that time, when we had the interview, when things looked better, remains completely true and I stand by it all. David Hicks is an extraordinary soul and I count getting to know him and call him a close friend the gift of a lifetime. A gift that you all and this project have given me. But more on that later. For now, it's time for part two of Meet David. Um, there's a lot going on in the world, as you said. What's going on in your life now? Impacting. <laughs> I don't really know how to say it. It's like a ridiculous transition. Yeah. Well, I mean, the health, my health is that. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah. So I am going through treatment for colon cancer. Um, I was diagnosed like a, a year and a half, a little under a year and a half ago uh, with uh, stage four colon cancer. And so that has been a huge, obviously huge thing in my life um, in all ways. Um, and it's drawn out a lot of spiritual growth um and yeah wait was the question about spiritual or just about i'm forgetting um i guess i i don't really know i think we could just it i dropped the cancer bomb right we had you, a segue, I, I, the it's like a ridiculous yeah, yeah that's like that's almost how I, and that's honestly been to be totally honest with you i think that's part of what's made me so nervous about this interview is that when i first spoke to you i had no idea like I truly had no idea. Yeah. And so everything that you were telling me as we were doing it the first time was, um, it, it was a bomb. It was like out of nowhere. And I, so I couldn't, every question that I asked was in the context of me hearing it for the first time. And now obviously I'm hearing it with the context of knowing what you're going through now. Mm. Um, and also just the anxiety of like, how do you make that transition? How do you say, Hey, you're getting surgery. It's the 23rd. I have it on my calendar. Day surgery is the 25th. Like, how are you feeling? Um, 
sorry, is that a question or just describing the just that? It's like that's what yeah. I actually want to ask. I want to start this interview. <laughs> I'm like, dude, going. your interview, you, you, what is happening in your life right now? Yeah. Yeah. It's been absolutely insane. It's been, yeah. I mean, so I guess would it help if I just go back to kind of the start of it and walk through and try to give the 10,000 foot view of what this last year and a half has looked like? Is that sure. the best? Sure. That, that would be, we can give the overview and then we can dive into the feelings. <laughs> the feels. Yeah. First facts, then yeah. feels. So I, so I, I'm a joint degree student, uh, Kennedy school doing public policy degree, uh, and then at HLS law student. So I started first at the Kennedy school just as, you know, single degree over there. Um, and I, I joined for the joint degree at the end of the year. So I do my first year at the Kennedy school. Uh, this would be the year before last. And, um, I get in to HLS very excited, going to be starting next year. Um, I have a grant uh, from Harvard to go back to China, which is where I, I lived for a few years before starting um, starting grad school. I'm planning to go back and do a big writing project. Um, and so you're killing it. You're like on top of the world. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. I'm Basically. Like, so like I'm hearing that. I'm like, okay, cool. So you peaked. I, yeah. I mean, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling in control. I'm feeling um, stable and hopeful about future, right? And and very shortly after these things, I, I had uh, seen a doctor. I had had some blood in my poop uh, for a few months. And not much, but I talked to my primary care physician and they were like, don't worry, uh, you're totally, you're probably fine, but we can't identify it. So you should see a specialist. Specialist said the same thing. Don't worry, you're probably fine, but I can't identify it. So you should get a colonoscopy. Everyone had said, don't worry. Um, so I scheduled this colonoscopy to happen during finals. Um, so it's final season at the Kennedy school. I'm about to go to China, start at HLS and I have a colonoscopy and I leave it and, you know, I'm still under anesthesia in the hospital and the doctor, the tone just shifted hundred mm. percent from this is probably fine to you need to go get a scan immediately and blood work immediately. There's a mass in your, uh, colon. So what happens in that moment? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, yeah, it, it was insane. I, my, my girlfriend at the time was with me. We had not been dating for too long. And, you know, I, I say that because you can imagine the intensity that immediately is introduced. She's there. I, I need a ride from someone not under anesthesia after. So she's with me and the doctor calls her. And so she's getting the news before I am. I'm kind of watching him tell her about, and he's giving her directions. You need to take him down here to this part of the hospital right now. Here's the directions. Go straight. Go right. Da, da, da. And I'm kind of still the anesthesia is wearing off and I'm watching him talk about me to her. And I'm just like, what is going on? And um, they start taking me around the hospital. I'm in this gown, right? Walking through parts of everyone in their normal clothes. I'm in the hospital gown. I'm like, go, go, go and get blood work and okay, go. And then I go to get a CAT scan. And that's when it really hit because I... They say, um, yeah, drink this uh, contrast solution. It'll show up on the scan and we need to wait for the contrast. So it goes from speedy, you know, run around the hospital to sit. Mm. And I remember saying to, to her, I, I'm going to, I need to go call my parents. And so calling my parents, you know, it's just a hit of just, I remember going to the bathroom and hearing myself. It was all this out of body thing, but hearing myself to say to them, and they were thinking I was fine, right? It's this quick colonoscopy. And then, so I have these texts from them, hey, how'd it go, how'd it go? They're not worried, but then I'm not responding because I've had to do all this stuff at the hospital. So I remember calling them, they pick up immediately, right? And I'm just like, they found a mass and I just break down crying when I say that. And it was this switch from out of body to like, oh my God, this I can't believe I'm saying this, right? And then going in the CAT scan machine and hearing the nurse set me up on the machine and the other nurse who's kind of getting my, I guess, stuff pulled up on the computer in the back. She calls out to the nurse who's with me, hey, where's his information? And the nurse is like, 
uh, he was just moved right to the top of the list. You should find it there. And she leaves the room and they turn the light off to start this scan. And I just remember hearing that, right? He's been moved to the top of the list. And it was this like, oh no, like how serious is this? And it's scanning my body, right? And it's like, breathe in, hold your breath, like exhale. And I remember seeing the scan machine going on all these other parts of my body that were not my colon and your mind just starts spiraling. So it was exceptionally intense. Um, I was insanely, I tried to finish a final the next day. I like, I had to take a final. I tried to finish and I, I went to my program director's office and, um, you know, just was like kind of in shock and just laid it out. It was very intense, right? I, I don't know what to say. I was just diagnosed with cancer. I can't finish these finals and phenomenal response. You know, you do not need to worry about this. We got it. I'm so sorry. And they took care of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but important. yeah, that it was, good. it was very intense. And so, you know, within, within 24 hours, I am scheduled for surgery. Um, I'm, I'm returning my check to Harvard for the grant. Um, I'm realizing I'm going to be living, you know, at my childhood home for the summer before starting law school. I'm, uh, you know, my friends, I'm, I'm hitting them with this bomb about what's happened to me. And then they're all taking off on their internship. So there's this crazy dynamic with that. Um, just everything kind of changed. Um, yeah. <laughs> I just need to sit with that for a minute. Yeah. I, I think what I'm struck by most in everything that you're saying is, you know, in these moments where you, like everything changes in an instant, right? There's like life before and then there's life after. In the moments, minutes, weeks, however long it takes, there's like a zillion spasms going off in your mind right at once. Mm-hmm. Um and as you're describing, it's like the information, the going undergoing the treatment, like distributing that information to the people who want to know and, you know, who you want to tell. There's like going through it. And then there's also the, as you mentioned, like the returning the check and your friends going away. And so I think in, to, to do what you wanted to and what you were, you know, pre that moment on the path to do. Um, I guess I just, I'm curious to like hear, or not curious is the wrong word, but like, I just wonder what it is like to be dancing between those two about like worrying about your health, but also mourning the loss of life before that moment. Mm. I like how you put that mourning the loss of life before. Cause I, I think that that was, that took me a while to get, to do that, um, you know, it's, it's so easy, I have found, when you're dealing with something traumatic to let yourself get preoccupied with details, right? And busy, busy yourself as a, as a way of kind of distraction or numbing or whatever. And I, I could do that at first, right? So it was, okay, let's get the surgery scheduled, go meet the surgeon. I need to figure out getting home. How do I move out of my apartment here? Get my stuff down to Philly, how, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I, um, yeah, it wasn't really until after the surgery and the dust kind of settles and I'm back in my childhood bed. Right. And I'm, I have nothing. There was one professor I was working with, helping him with an article. Um, that's really all I had for the summer and I'm doing that from home. And, and then I, you know, I start reflecting and really thinking and there, um, trying to think of a way to like concisely answer your question here. It's a good question. So just so if I'm understanding the question correctly, you're asking about like, what did it look like to, to what, to face it or to, to grieve it? Yeah, I think, it's it's both. I guess it's a two-part question. One is how much of your mind, I mean, I guess it depends on where you were in your medical journey, right? But like how much of your mind is focusing forward on the fear, the anxiety, the stress of 
you know, the cancer bomb, so to speak, mm-hmm. looking forward and how much of your energy and mind and emotions is kind of more rather like focusing on the loss in the morning of the past. And then the secondary question is how did those actually feel? Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of it became about, um, for me, the process was mourning, mourning what like could have been. Um, but, and this is where, you know, there's not a disconnect between what we've talked about with my faith background and this, and actually it's very prominent because I, um, grew up in a community that where people did talk about suffering. That's one of the things we do in youth group, right. And talk about in church. And so I had seen people who had suffered serious losses, uh, who had been from my outsider's view, um, eaten up by that and very consumed in things like self-pity, um, or in, you know, destructive behaviors to numb it. And I, had had an abstract understanding of that. Suddenly I'm in those shoes. And so I think I've very, I I know I'm exceptionally grateful for that because I think it gave me a framework where it's like, all right, I've thought about suffering in the abstract. Now is time to like put it to practice and how do I want to walk this journey? And so I moved, um, relatively quickly to that question of like, what's it look like to suffer well here? Hmm. And I was really fortunate to be connected with another guy um, around my age who also had had colon cancer while working on the hill. Um, So similar, you know, stressful, busy uh, job and managed to do chemo with that. So I'm on the phone with him that night after I'm diagnosed, a friend connects us and this guy, same faith. And so we're able to talk about it in those terms. And he, you know, he prays with me, talks about things that he had learned during his journey with this. And he recommends this book to me called Don't Waste Your Cancer um, by this theologian and John Piper who had gotten cancer. And he just wrote a little, little book. It's a little pamphlet. Um, of thoughts about what's it mean to like not waste an experience of suffering. Right. So I got that Mm. book right away and read through it and started reading similar things about how do you suffer well. And so that really took up a lot of my time in my better moments, right? Weaker moments. Absolutely. Like intense fear, intense anxiety. Um, But fortunately that was more the exception than the norm. Yeah, I I hope this isn't like crossing the line, but I, I almost want to push back on like it's not your weaker moment. Like that's human. Like it's it's like it, it's not even human. That's not the wrong word. It's it's in the same way with faith, it's like the interplay between doubt and belief. Hmm. Like if you don't feel something, you can't heal it. Um can I res- can I quickly respond yeah please to that? yeah I think please. I think that's a, a very important qualification from it, from a um, a not a Christian perspective like the way most people would hear weakness you associate that with negative a negative thing right uh, yeah. in my faith tradition the way I hear weakness is actually it can be you know there's a Bible verse like in my weakness I'm, there's strength and so. Uh. I, I use it in, in that sense. In my weaker moments, i.e. in moments where I forget to um, hone my mind or focus my mind on these things. And there's a lot of growth that has come from that of when I can mm-hmm. just turn my mind off for a little bit and kind of hear my heart more clearly. What do you hear? When you do that, uh, fear, I hear fear. Uh, I hear loneliness, intense loneliness, right? That's you go from being in a community 
<laughs> I could I could riff on this for a while. I'll I'll, I'll try do. to say this. No, nicely. no. Well, yeah. I mean, you go from being in this community. I'm referring to the Harvard community of peers, people who you're sharing this experience with. I had had a phenomenal time at Harvard. Um, people with such fascinating life experiences and, you know, we're sharing about our experiences with each other and, you know, globally minded. And I'm, and I just really connecting with people on, and that's sort of the thing that bonds, right? Suddenly I'm on a very different path uh, in one sense, right? I'm, I'm dealing with a serious cancer diagnosis and it suddenly looks like these sorts of things people we busy ourselves with, um, I'm just, I need to think about it differently. How do you date <laughs> when you have a cancer diagnosis like that? It's hard, right? How do you, um, how do you take a final too seriously? How do you get too into that? Like if it becomes very hard for me to focus on things like school, because as soon as I meet a challenge, my mind goes to, well, I might die. So why would I bother with this? This is stupid. But actually, anyway. how do you do that? Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's been, I'm learning that. And I think what I'm finding is you need a different, you need a different reason. You need a different reason to care about these things. And for me, and I say, I say this, like knowing people who've, who've made this leap and knowing a lot of people who it's just hard to make this leap, but like, if you're, if your goal in education, I'll speak just for myself. It, if my goal in education is like, I want the best job, then yeah, I, I can't do this. How do you get through? I've got another two years of law school. How do you do that if, if it's about getting the best job? Because it's not an unrealistic, it's statistically likely that I die, you know, within a few years of graduation. So work doesn't seem that important. Wealth accumulation doesn't seem that important. Um, so that can't be the framing. That can't be what gets me studying. It needs to be different. It needs to be deeper, right? And it needs to be something like, so what I do is I think, wow, this is amazing. I am learning about these systems, like these things that shape the world. I, I'm, I'm participating in these traditions that are hundreds, thousands of years old, right? Like, the law or, you know, policy school, it's understanding these frameworks and wow, a person's mind came up with this framework or someone came up with this law. How did they mess up so badly? <laughs> or like, how did they do so well? Or why did this, you know, what led to this sort of thinking? So trying to like harness the curiosity as the guide and learning for learning's sake, rather than some utilitarian, you know, this is a tool to, further my own life and my own ends because that's not very it's uncertain for all of us but the uncertainty is very uh apparent to me right now um and that's something i mean this this sounds bizarre i say this realizing listeners might be like this guy is crazy but i'm the host here okay i'm the host you're okay <laughs> okay well i i mean this this next little anecdote this is something i i've been kind of wired this way for a while and and so i'll share my what i do around new years i've never made a new year's resolution but in college i got excited i forget how but the idea of reflecting on mortality around the new year and letting that be an opportunity so what i do eat like once a year usually around New Year's unless it's too cold or whatever, is I go for a walk in a graveyard. And that sounds really morbid, but I don't mean it morbidly. I, <laughs> I don't, that. Right? And I, I find a, a look up, you know, beautiful graveyards near the you. A different it's, one every year? I to find a different one. I Usually it's just because I'm moving around. So it's mm -hmm. that's just been the reality. But yeah, little ones are big ones. And um, and I just, I just take a walk. And I just read the gravestones and I read... Uh, you know, I try to use my imagination, right? So you see birth date, death date, and I'm like, wow, that person was this old and, you know, family plots and wow, that family, I wonder this son died before the father. I wonder what that was like. And just really putting my mind to that or, you know, wow, this person's grave is huge. They must've had a lot of money. Crazy. Oh, I've <laughs> never heard their name before. Don't know anything about this person. Like that's where their wealth got them. Interesting. And they somehow thought having a massive, 
you know, gravestone here, a little shrine to them right. would keep them significant. And they died 50 years that ago. Suck. There's nothing about them online. Like, that's kind of it. Yeah. And so for me, that is a really centering practice of just reminding myself of like, life's got to be for about something other than just me. And I'm part of a world with a lot of people who, um, I think our natural wiring is, you know, self-focus, self-absorption. And there's plenty of people who find ways to um, orient themselves differently, to be outwardly focused, others focused, or, and plenty of people who don't. And it's like, all right, how do, how do I be in the, the former camp rather than the latter? And cancer diagnosis is a great way to face that directly and say, you know, what am I going to choose here? One thing, can I tell a little story around? Please, of course. This has stuck with me and, and I'm still really excavating it. Um, but I remember one time I, this it was one of these chemo days. I, I was getting this infusion. They gave me my pump. I bump, I, I bike back to class. I go to class. And, you know, that day I, I'm, I'm sitting in a room, there's other people who you get to know at chemo, other patients. And I think someone had like died that week. Like they just weren't there. Right. And I asked the nurse, you know, where are they? And they passed. So I'm in this, if anything is going to kind of ground you, ground your perspective on the world, it would be chemo. Right. It's just like, you're thinking about bigger things. Um, or it can be very centering, right? And so someone has died and I'm getting this infusion. I'm thinking about my life, meaning of life. And then I go to class and I'm anxious about a cold call. Um, and I don't want to be what? I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want to be whatever. And I left, I remember just leaving this class and being like, what is wrong with me? Like how, right? That not that insane? It's that, insane. It's so insane. But you think about how's that, how does that happen? Like you, we, you know, we talk in orientation law school, like don't be afraid of the cold call. Da, da, da. But I've, I've just finished in this question. Like, why, why am I afraid of a cold call? Um, <laughs> it's just, it's so crazy. Cause I say it's insane, but at the same time, I think, I think someone's lying if they say that they don't have the exact same experience. Right. I mean, not, Obviously, in terms of cancer, I have a chemo pump attached to me and I'm worried about a cold call. But whatever else is going on in someone's life, it becomes wholly irrelevant. Like when you sit in that class, the thing that is the center of your attention can become a cold call. And I think that hearing it for someone who, like, as you said, is like the most grounding experiences and still a cold call trump that, what is your answer to the question of like why? Yeah, I mean, I think... Honestly, fear of death. I think it's fear of death. And and I don't mean just physically, right? Is like, and this is where I am at, at, in the answer so far as I've been thinking about it, but fear of physical death, getting a chemo infusion, thinking of cancer, am I going to die physically, right? You go to a classroom, there's still fear of death, but it's different kind. It's reputation, right? Am I going to be Am I going to be seen as smart? Is is the image I like to project going to hold up here? No, maybe not. Maybe I'm going to look really dumb in a second, or maybe I'm going to say something really like not woke, and or maybe I'll say something really woke, and right? the people who I whoever it is that I want to like right. me might feel otherwise, and yeah. I depth of depth of relationship, depth of whatever. Um, and I, and I don't mean to use death tritely. I think that's truly what it is. It's this existential thing and how deep our fears are, right? How deeply rooted is that fear of death that can do something like make us feel very somber in chemo or make us feel very anxious in the classroom. I think it's the same core impulse. Like I'm afraid of dying. And how deeply rooted is that fear that a cold call, yeah, as you said, like could trump trump something like a chemo infusion, but it can. And that's a lifetime of stuff that leads to that. 
I think what's striking to me is that you are such an interplay between like a deeply curious, we can call it a gunner, we can call it a nerd, whatever, you, you know, you find joy in the questions and in exploring, you know, the thoughts of the world. I'm shaking my hands above my head um, and the deeply intellectual practice, but you're also someone who is so grounded in the human component of life and like the actual relationships and Hmm. I guess, you know, I'm someone who my debate internal dilemma with law school was that's three years of my life, assuming I'm going to live till a hundred. That's always the year that's always been in my mind, which is ridiculous, but it's three years was like, that is a phenomenal amount of time. Like, do I want to spend three years doing this thing? Hmm. That was the question I had to keep asking myself. And you couple minutes ago, we were saying, you know, my prospects are four to five years. How, how do you sit with that? I, um, how do I sit with that? Like, yeah. What do you feel I, when I say that? Like what? Um, what do I feel when you say that? Part of what I feel is, uh, skepticism. Like, no, I'm going to make it. I'll do it. You know, I think, I think the statistic is like 84% or something. Statistics, I'm glad for the policy degree. I took enough statistics classes to know that they're not always helpful. And I think a lot of cancer stats are, are not helpful, um, for me here. So, you know, whatever the stat is. Um, there's plenty of people. I think it is 84% or something. That means 16% of people read the stats, thought that they were going to die in five years and they're around. Right. Yeah. And part of me is like, I think, I think Harvard's admissions numbers are a little bit (laughs) harder than the likelihood here. Like this is the next challenge for me, right? Oh my God. beat Beat the odds. Um, there's part of me that feels that there's another part of me that feels like, What's it really mean to die too young? Um, people say that a lot to me, right? Like you're too young for this. You're too young. Mm-hmm. And I get it. It's, I'm not an idiot. I'm like, yeah, I, yeah, this is very young. <laughs> and, you know, unfortunate feels like too light a way to put it. It's a real like tragedy in some ways. In others, to your point about scoping, how long is a lifespan? Like whatever. 30 years, 100 years, in the grand scheme of things of human history, it's a blip. And it's not about like quantity, it's quality. And I look at some uh, adults who've, you know, lived numerically longer than I have. And there's not a fullness there um, of years. And so when I hear you say that, like you might have a short number of years, part of me is like, yeah, how do I live that really fully at law school? That's exactly my question. Right? My question is not like sucks school? to suck, Dave. You have four years, like rut bro. Yeah. It's you're at law school. Yeah. How do you <laughs> why? Why would I wait? It's the question yeah. like, why would I waste my time at law school if I might not have that much more? Is that it, that's essentially my question. question. Yeah. I mean, I think the answer is, as I'm understanding it now, and I'll be curious hearing this interview whenever this comes out to hear how my thoughts have evolved because they, they're evolving a lot. But as of today, as of whatever, August 23rd, 2020, I think that the question of a full life is really almost completely separate from like what we do. Um, how we spend our time. I don't really think there's a correlation there at all. And I think you can be in any, you can be a king, you can be a janitor. It doesn't matter. Like fullness of life, I think is in relationships and we are relational people, right? And I can form relationships at graduate school, just like I could if I were to quit and go do a, I don't know, sisterhood of the traveling pants type thing, right? Go on some adventure. I, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. And so for me, I think how it changes my behavior now is like, 
I'm really not all that interested in filling all my time with classwork. And I'm not interested in letting fear of what some hiring partner is going to think of me um, guide my decision-making. I don't want to live governed by fear at all. And that's, that is a conviction that comes from my faith, right? It's like, don't be not afraid. Like, what's it look like to live fearlessly? And um, so this question of, you know, if you only have a few years to live, why spend it at law school? It's like, well, because there's so many ways that I can overcome fear here, um, which I think is what leads to a full life. So why would I leave that? Um, yeah, it doesn't, it, the circumstance, and this is something I've thought about in lots of other ways too, as I've moved to different places, different jobs, it's like how much of, um, what I do is governed by fear. How much of what I do is, um, how do I want to put this? Like, I'm not sure I can think of a good way to put this, but staying in one, staying in one place, I guess, like there's a lot of growth that can happen if you just stay in one place. And if I feel like, oh, this is, I'm entering a new chapter, a new season, whatever, cancer diagnosis. So I need to move to this place. The core things, right? The fears, the loneliness, the whatever, those are coming with me wherever I am. Um, so it's about doing what I can with what I have and what I happened to have when I was diagnosed was, you know, I'm a, I'm a law student now. Um, and rather than try to change my circumstances, I'm going to, I've chosen to just kind of stay in them. Fortunately, and I, I should, I want to give this qualification because I have friends who are sick and have had to leave. Fortunately, I've been physically able to, I know there are plenty of people who need to walk away from things because they're physically not able to. That's not what I'm talking about here. It's like as long as my body is functioning where I can get by, um, I want to stay where I am. I, I'm of the same mind that relationships are like the magic sauce of life. Um, it's the connections that we have with people, whether you're the king or the janitor, um, are the, the, it's everything. I'm having a really hard time because of that in coronavirus world, um, you know, life pre and post because of how hard it is or how much harder it feels to make those relationships. And I don't necessarily mean like going to my friend's house and watching a movie as, as much as I've like missed that, but it's like my grandparents, like I just miss hugging my grandparents. Mm. Um, I miss, you know, waking up up in the morning and whatever it may be. How are you doing with all of that as someone who, you know, both pre-cancer and during cancer relationships have been so foundational for you? In coronavirus? Yeah, sure. like now, nowadays. Yeah, um, really hard, really, really hard. I you know, for example, I have surgery in, in two days and I'll be in the hospital for several days after, and I can't have any visitors. I can have one person, my family's local only, um, but only one person is allowed to come from my family. Right. And it's pretty major surgery. And so I think about that and I contrast that with, I've had two other surgeries since this started and really fortunate to just have some incredible friends show up and to the point where the nurses had to tell people to leave because there were so many people coming and it was so meaningful to me and so lovely. Right. And so now I'm picturing this week where I'll just, I'm just going to be in a hospital room and kind of physically alone, um, basically. And you describe the room of your friends, like all coming in and kind of being there and I mean, it's just so much love. Hmm. Yeah, I have amazing friends. I love my friends so much. They're, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think this is like a hard question because, you know, any answer you give is going to be like, oh, he was trying to be coy or whatever. But like, what do you attribute that to? 
like what what is it about you know who you are and the person that you bring to the room do you think mm. yeah that's a hard one to answer <laughs> yeah it's really hard <laughs> I'm sorry I mean yeah I I'll try to be honest like well I'll tell no I'll tell you what what they've said to me because this is something a few friends have said I had a good friend of mine say you know the reason people are giving you all this love is because it's the love that you've you've given and and I I think there's truth in that um but not fully there's there have been people who've shown up and um I haven't really known them that well and they've become friends. I've made friends through this. And, and I, I think this reminds me of something I wanted to say earlier and I didn't, um, about the loneliness and about fault. Yeah. Okay. Going back to the comment about being on the same path as of other people at Harvard and then suddenly being kind of alone mm-hmm. in my experience, that's the first step, right? You feel you're hit with this traumatic experience. Oh, I have cancer and my classmates don't. Uh, most of them don't or are aware that they do. That's morbid, but you know, they're <laughs> not willing. Yeah, yeah right. Don't worry. Hopefully not. Hopefully they don't. I definitely. I mean, do. it's so isolating. There's this isolation, right? You feel alone, but then there's the second step, and the second step is has been beautiful for me, and that is, I'm actually not. I'm actually not alone in suffering. That's pretty universal, and that is something that can draw me into community with people in a far richer way. Mm. The salient characteristic is different now, right? Before it was, oh, we're students, we're globally minded. Those are, those are good. And you can build communities around that. And I think that's what we do instinctively, right? Is like, oh, you're a student. Oh, you're a one LM or one L let's be bonded by this shared, like really hard year or, Oh, you're you've lived in this country. I lived in this country. We're we're, we're bound by that. Yeah, the straight through. Exactly right. That can be the thing, and then you lose that. Oh, okay. Cancer, and you know those things are still true. But the thing that's most on my mind right now, we don't share. Um, I'm alone, and you can get stuck there. And I know a lot of people do get stuck there with their trauma or with hard experiences. Is I'm alone. And the self-pity and the self-focus can be fully absorbing and, and you're done. Once you're there, you're done. Unless you can take the next step. And I think the next step is like sharing your suffering with others. And you find, I have found, as I have spoken, like I am now, like I'm trying to now, I, I've been pretty vocal this whole process about the highs and the lows is like, vulnerability begets vulnerability. The more I'm willing to share where I'm hurting and where I'm healing, the more other people have responded to that, right? And I've had some incredible messages from people who I barely knew sharing about their own experiences, not health necessarily, but yeah, this, you made me think about this area where there's some real hurt or like, I didn't realize this part of this part of my soul was sprained for so long. I didn't realize that. And, you know, I need to deal with that. And, and suddenly we're bound by something far richer and far more room for deep relationship there. And that's been really, really, really cool to experience. It's like, as I've been open, my friendships have just deepened a lot with people who are willing to respond. Not everyone's willing to respond, right? Some some relationships have kind of stagnated and people who aren't willing to go there, but by and large, I've found people have responded really well to that. And that's been meaningful for me and I think meaningful for them. This is the actual last question, yeah. I promise, and then I'm actually done. But your existence in so many ways as someone who has stage four cancer and who has a chemo pump in class, it becomes like a, I could imagine a constant reminder and a lesson to the people around you of, Mm -hmm. you know, the actual, the important things, what life is really about, you know, the finality of life, Steve Jobs or whoever it was said that death is the greatest invention of life. With all of that being said, like, how do you think, well, I guess you have answered this actually, as I now say it, 
I don't know. It's just, I, I think of like the, the chemo pump and time. It's like tick, tick, tick. You can't. Yeah, it would literally it. tick, by the way. Yeah, it literally ticked. Which is just insane. <laughs> yeah. It's just insane. Like that is an insane image in someone's mind. I, I don't know. I, I just, I don't even know what it is about it that's so kind of profound, but it's like, it, it it's life encapsulated in poison, right? Like what is chemo? It, it kills. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. That's a great way to put it. But yeah, I, and can I, can I just say one thing? I don't know if this will be edited out or not, but okay. this is important. Whenever I talk about the cancer stuff, I think like one of the main things I want to communicate is that like, I don't want to glamorize. It sounds right. weird, but like what I'm going through as being something very unique, it's intense in a different way. But I think like, and to your point, a reminder of yeah, mortality and what is life about. And I find the answers are in, in my faith, right. For, for those things but this is universal stuff and i think that is why yeah what you're saying is to the extent that if people see what i'm going through and it reminds them their own thing that can be community forming um i think that's kind of the core thing that I, i've really been feeling strongly is like this can be community forming it doesn't have to be isolating mm -hmm. um and at the same time, just to go full circle, like, you know, I can imagine someone hearing this. I hear this as I hear you speak. I'm like, oh my God, he's so incredible. Like this is, he's just the most incredible human being ever. I, you know, I cannot imagine if I were going through cancer, I would, through chemo, I just, I would not do it like that. What, a, what an amazing human. And not to say that that's not true, but like that's in one hand. And in the other hand is the very unglamorous reality of just the weight of that, of all of this like the spectacular weight, not to mention the pain and, you know, the loss and all of that, but just the weight of having to carry that around all the time. Sorry, carry, carry what around? Just like everything that we've been talking about, it, you know, the, the confrontation with all of these things that for those of us who are lucky enough to not have to deal with death on a day-to-day -day basis or like dance around it, can kind of be a more philosophical conversation. Mm. Um, you know, I don't have to worry about like calling my mom and saying, Hey, I got the scans back. They don't look so great. Like that, that the weight of that must, there's nothing glamorous about that. There. Yeah. There's definitely nothing glamorous about it. And there's nothing, um, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't wish this wouldn't wish this on anybody. Um, at the same time, and again, I don't I don't mean to beat a dead horse, but I really I can't overstate how central, like for me, the faith is on this because even the framing of like carrying the weight is I don't feel like in my faith tradition I'm called I believe to like lay the weight down, mm. and that's something I do in prayer and in quiet times in you know, reading the Bible or reading other like great thinkers on these things. And, and it's about, you know, putting your burden down and what's that actually mean. Right. Uh, and that's something I'm learning what that actually means as the burden is greater of like, wow. Okay. First cancer now COVID. Wow. Okay. Like, and it keeps the cancer keeps coming back. I've had a few recurrences. Oh, another surgery. The burden for me is just getting heavier and heavier. Um, and I'm learning in that what it means to to give up, you know, that weight to something different. And that for me is why I believe um, religion, or at least exploring these questions, right? People, I, I love talking about the stuff with people that um, one of my favorite thinkers, I'll try not to ramble here. I know we're, we're watching the time, but no, my so favorite good. thinker is like David Foster Wallace. Um, talks about gave this commencement speech and he's talking we're all we're all I worshipers right speech. yeah it's a great speech he's like we are all worshipers and and he says not 
not Christian. I am not sure what his religious background was, but he's like, you know, a reason to make it a, make it God in whatever way you want to think of God. I, I think in the Christian way, but doesn't have to be strictly that for my point here is like, because anything else will kill you. Anything else will kill you. And, and that is, I have found to be true, right. Is when I have tried, okay, I'm going to deal with this. What I'm going to deal with my, my feelings of fear around uh, potentially dying from a cancer diagnosis. I'm going to deal with that by being really busy or in like being really successful or wow, if I'm going to go, I'm going to go in this way and trying to stage manage end of life stuff as so many of us are inclined to do, you know, that's not going to, that's not going to work. I don't think it'll work or, Oh, I'm going to, I want to have X kind of reputation. If I went into this conversation with you saying, thinking to myself, okay, I want to come off as, as this certain way. It never, it won't work. Um, and that's something I strive for, right? Is like, before we talked here, I'm just thinking and kind of praying and like, I just, I don't, I don't want us. It's the stage management. I don't want to stage manage how I'm going to come off. How's this? What am I going to say? What's the smart thing to, to, to like, I have found that, fighting that urge, that impulse, which we all have because it's self-preservation, right? It's like I can preserve my identity as I want to be seen by people. Letting go of that um, I think is so key. But you can't just let go of it. You need to fill that with something because it's just a human need, right? It's who am I? And that's where I think like faith has come in, comes in for me. And I'd argue like for everyone in, in some way. Um, where those questions of, you know, the bigger, the meaning of life, that kind of stuff, where it really comes into play. Thank you for listening to Dandelions, a podcast sponsored by student government at Harvard Law School. Dandelions is executive produced by Anjali Banjiri and me, Mazella Dasami. Produced by Sam Harris, Solange Dasami, and Danny Belgrad. The show is written by Sam Harris and edited by Danny Belgrad. Artwork designed by Georgia Salisbury. Special thanks to Christy Jobson, Sam Parker, Sarah DeLorme, Diego Alvarez, Noel Graham, and Billy Wright. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Harvard Law School or Harvard University. Thanks so much for listening and see you again next time.